All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we are beginning the second major section of the book. You remember the book has two big sections. The first is chapters 1 through 6, where he is rebuking some sin that's going on in, in the church. And now in chapter 7, this begins a section where he is going to be replying to some uh, questions that they have. So um, you'll remember that there have been some messengers who've been going uh, back and forth between Corinth and, uh, and, and, and Paul, where, where he's writing from Ephesus here. And they've been telling him stuff about what's going on at the church and also asking him some questions. Hey, these are things that people are talking about back at the church. Uh, what say you, Paul? So he's replying to some of uh, their, their questions. And <laughs> this does not lack for interesting material, okay? So uh, chapter 7, we're going to talk about uh, marriage and divorce and singleness. Uh, chapters 8 through 11, about food uh, offered to idols and how should we think about issues of Christian freedom. Then uh, chapter 11, so we're going to talk about uh, yeah, head coverings and women. Uh, then also in chapter 11, we're going to talk about um, the Lord's Supper. Then 12 through 14, about spiritual gifts with tongues and prophecy and all that fun stuff. And then uh, chapter 15, talking about the resurrection. And then finally in 16, a little bit about some money stuff and then some of Paul's shout outs. So we'll be here for a week and uh, this will be great. <laughs> all right, so chapter 7, um, verses 1 through 40. Um, yeah, we titled this uh, Worshipful Wedlock, Heavenly Wisdom uh, About Marriage, verses 1 through 24, and Singleness, verses 25 down through, through 40. Now, there's a couple um, things that are going to help you understand why this question is coming up for the, the Corinthians. There's, there's, there's kind of two challenges. The first is there's aesthetic teaching that has been making its way into the church that gives the idea that ab abstaining from all pleasure is really important. So you can see that there's, you've got the camp in the church that's like all in on pleasure, and then you've got the other camp in the church who's like never get near pleasure. Both of those are, are errors, right? Um, and, and they're both in the church. So you can imagine how that's going to that's gonna turn some, some, some squabble in here. And part of the discussion is, okay, well, if pleasure is bad then what should we do with, about sex? Should, should we never have sex with, should husbands and wives never, never have sex? And, and if, if we're going to get, if we're engaged, what should, what should we do? Should we go ahead and get married? Or should we not get married? What should we do? So that's going on. Um, and then another thing that's happening is that as the gospel's going out, people are getting saved, but sometimes... Um, one spouse will get saved and the other spouse won't get saved. So now you have a situation where you have a believer and an unbeliever. What's supposed to happen then? Uh, should we, yeah, should the believer divorce the unbeliever? Um, or should they stay with them? How should we think about that? So those are two of the things that are going on in the church in Corinth that, yeah, have, have provoked them to ask this question uh, about, about marriage, Okay. Now, if you look at uh, 7.1 here, this is going to be his, his introduction. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. And that, that phrase is going to show up several times through the rest of the book on, on a lot of the different questions, okay? And here's the question. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a, a woman? So again, there's some, probably some stoic uh, philosophic wisdom 
that had convinced some to abstain from pleasure, maybe because the end is near, um, maybe just because pleasure in general is, is, is bad. But we don't know exactly what the teaching was. It's Part of listening to 1 Corinthians is kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You kind of get most of what's going on, but there's pieces that you're just not sure about, and that, that you get a little bit of that feel. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this, this chapter. And what he's going to do, he's going to begin here in verses 2 through 5, and he's going to say um, to, the, to, the, to the married couples, serve your spouse in the, in the, in the realm of sexual, sexually. Okay? Um, verse 2. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each person should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So Paul, what he's saying here is that because temptations to, to sin sexually abound, Paul is exhorting people to, to marry. So this is not the only reason that he would say it's, it's good to get married, but this is, this is one of the reasons, okay? Uh, to be able to enjoy sexual satisfaction with, with each other. Which, by the way, I just think it's important to note here that God commands husbands and wives to have sex. Um, it's very interesting doing a lot of premarital and marital counseling over the years. In premarital counseling, it's always keep your hands off of each other, okay? And then, whenever it's marriage counseling, very often, ask the question, so when was the last time you guys were intimate? And sometimes it's been a very long time. You've got to give the other command. Well, here's your, here's your homework. It's my favorite pastoral command. You need to go home and be with each other, Okay. I mean, this is, it's in the Bible. Like, this God knows how we're wired and that this is, this is an important part of the relationship of a husband and a wife. And we could do a whole seminar on, on that, but, but we've got to move through this. So what, what we need to see here, though, is that husbands and wives are commanded um, to approach sexual intimacy together as servants. Did, did you catch that? That that is what is to mark... The intimacy of a husband and a wife, it's, it's service. Both understand that because of marriage, they now belong to one another. So they ought not withhold intimacy from one another. Right? And, and this is, by the way, this is, this is the exact opposite of everything that the world says sex is about. It's this, you know, just this erotic, like, passionate thing, which is, like, sure, there should be passion and pleasure, but, but sex and marriage is so much more than that. It's at the core service, and Paul's highlighting that here. Now, I think, I think again, we could, do, we could do lots of talking here on this, but the, the, the core thing he wants them to see is they are to care for each other. And he, he gives this concession that you can fast from sex and marriage to pray. Now, husbands or wives don't use that too much, uh, as a, like, we should just pray forever. Um, but... But the, the idea is that he then warns them, he then warns them, but come back together again soon. Because of why? 
Because Satan loves when husbands and wives are not being intimate with one another. Because it gives opportunity for attack. And that attack can happen in 10,000 different ways. Either cultivating apathy and coldness, or with passions that are unsatisfied that can be directed elsewhere. There's 10,000 ways that he does that. But there's something that God uses for husbands and wives to cultivate intimacy um, on, on a deep spiritual level that comes through, um, through sexual intimacy. So, the command is here to serve your spouse sexually. Then he's going to move in verse 7 to, uh, to call the church to embrace the gift that you're given. Now, verse, verse 7, so he's just, he just talked about marriage, it's good, but now verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with, with passion. What I want us to notice right here is this idea of, of gift. The idea of gift here. This is, there's, there's a provision, Paul says, that everybody in the church has. All right? and, and that is either marriage or singleness. And that's, that's your gift. Both are good gifts from God for the purpose of the good of the person, the glory of God, and the good of, of the church. All right? So uh, this, this same theme is going to show up later in verse 17. Let each person uh, lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has, has called him. The same language of gifting is going to be used in chapter 12 of spiritual gifts, that God has arranged the body just as He desires. So your, what that means is, if you're single, your gift is singleness. And if you are married, your gift is marriage. To which you may say, well, how do you know? <laughs> well, because you are. <laughs> Whatever state you're in is the gift that God has, has given you. And what you've got to remember is that what we're called to do is to steward that gift because you don't know how long you're going to have that gift. Because marriage can be taken away. And your singleness can be taken away and replaced with marriage. We, we, we don't know how long we have a gift, right? Right? So the idea that he's saying here is whatever, whatever God's given you, use it. We'll come back to some more of that in a little bit. This idea of burning with passion. As he said in 7.2, this is a good motivation to marry, um, but I want to be, when he really, I want to give a word of caution to single brothers and sisters who, who just want to get married for this reason. Okay? You can have the best spouse on the planet and maybe even have you know a wonderful sex life with with your spouse but if your heart is not satisfied in God your heart will always wander somewhere else for satisfaction a spouse can be a wonderful helper but they are they are sorry saviors they cannot be for you what only God can be for you okay so one of the things to remember is that the struggles of the flesh, they really only intensify in marriage. Because now you've got two sinners in one house, and there's all kinds of other added pressures to the situation. So if you are a discontent single, and that's not addressed and repented of, you will be a miserably discontent married person. 
So that's, I'm not saying that as a rebuke. I just want just to give you some comfort that God is not cruel. He is wise. And it's a gift that He's given. So whatever the gift is, use it well. Now verse 10. There's going to be discussion now about divorce. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. We'll talk about that in a minute. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, first of all, let's talk about the not I, but the Lord stuff. Okay, so he says, not I, but the Lord, meaning he's directly quoting something from Jesus. And then he says, I, not the Lord, meaning he's not directly quoting from Jesus, but he's still guided by the Holy Spirit as an, as an apostle. So it's not less authoritative. He's just... he's. He's footnoting where he's getting his stuff, okay? So one, he's quoting Jesus. The other, this is Holy Spirit-led um, instruction. Now, Jesus clearly taught in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19, other places it's echoed in the gospel, the other gospels, that, that divorce is a grievous sin, and it's allowed only in the case of, of adultery. Well, here what Paul is going to do under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's, he's going to give further revelation because there's always, well, what about this and what about that scenario, right? And he's going to give some more instruction here. Now, there's four scenarios here. That we're just going to walk through each of them, okay? So the first one is this. Or, well, how about, we'll, we'll just say, I'll just give you four instructions. The first is this. You should not divorce your spouse, okay? You should not divorce your spouse. But if there is a divorce, you must remain single, or reconcile with them. This is, this is, this, this is what he's teaching here. That, that if there's a divorce, that you remain single. Now, there is much discussion in the church about, well, what about if the person commits adultery, or there's the abandonment, all these things. This is where, yeah, there, I just want you to know that there are differing opinions on whether remarriage is ever allowable. Um, our church right now, the elders are working through an internal document, and yeah, I think even among the elders, there's some things that we're, we're trying to sort through. My personal take is that if, if someone is, is divorced because the offending spouse has sinned against them in a way that is unrepentant, proving to be an unbeliever, that they are, as Paul will say later, not enslaved to that marriage covenant anymore, and they are free to remarry uh, and again, with it's a case-by-case basis, and that's where we would want to talk through all of the situations and scenarios. Um, but I think what we need to see here, the, the primary teaching of the New Testament is don't get divorced. Do not initiate a divorce. That this is not, it's not, on the op- it's not an option for believers. When you read this, you see what God says marriage is and what it reflects, and it is holy ground. And it must be treated as such. 
The second instruction here, you should not divorce an unbelieving spouse if they consent to live with you. So this is one of the questions that are like, okay, I'm saved, but my, my spouse is not, should, should I just, can I, can I leave? Should I leave? And the answer is, is, is no. If they consent to stay, you should stay with them, right? Uh, now, some have said, well, now we're not unequally yoked, or now we're unequally yoked, so I'm disobeying that commandment. That's, I think that's misusing that 2 Corinthians text. Stay, remain as you are. Stay in, stay in the marriage, okay? Um, and then he, he highlights how God will use this to sanctify the house. It doesn't mean that your spouse automatically gets saved because you're saved, or that your children are automatically saved because you're saved. What he's talking about there with them being holy is that there's a sense in which they are exposed to gospel teaching in a way that, that does sanctify them in their minds, that they're, they're set apart in that they, they know things about God because of the faithfulness of the believing parent that they wouldn't know if there was no believing parent there. That's, that's what he's talking about. So, um, yeah, salvation is not given just by proximity. There's got to be repentance, but there's, there's real sanctifying effect in that sense, not a salvi- salvific uh, sense, but in an even pre-evangelism sort of thing. Third instruction. The presence of a believer has a particularly sanctifying effect on the unbelieving family. This is what we were just mentioning there. So for those of you who are either in this situation or know somebody who's in this situation, I just want to encourage you to continue to persevere and to trust the Lord. It's a very difficult thing to be married to an unbeliever. I mean, I've seen so many situations. It is hard. And for those of you who are not married, I just want to give you as compassionate and bold a counsel as I can, do not marry somebody who does not love God. And do not, do not do the, oh, but they went to church one time or they'll go to church with me now. Like, if they'll go to church with you now because you're going to start dating them, like, listen, y'all, God can do anything. And I certainly see Him, him work in the, in the midst of mess. Certainly true. But the general principle is it doesn't end well often. And as, as hard as it is to be alone, it is, it is even harder to be married and be alone, in, in a sense. So if you're in that situation, I'd be happy to talk, talk with you about that. The fourth one is that if an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse... They are no longer bound to the marriage covenant. Now again, there's different readings on this and happy to discuss it with you, but uh, this is from verse 15. If an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse, they are no longer bound to the marriage covenant. So this is, this is the idea of, of abandonment, that they, they leave and prove to be an, an unbeliever. So these are the cases that he gives here for divorce. I'm sure we'll have some questions on that. We're going to press through the rest of the chapter, and then we'll take questions at the, at the end. So feel free to just write your questions down, and we'll come back to them, okay? Now what he does in verses 17 through 24 is he's going to say, you need to have contentment in your calling. Contentment in your calling, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his uh, call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, hear, let him remain with God. Just one little note, I haven't pointed this out. Anytime you see brothers, the word's a delphoi. It's, in the, it's, a, it's a neuter plural. It's brothers and sisters is a, is a fair translation of it. So just, he's talking to the whole congregation. What he's saying here in this section, 17 through 24, is you need to be content in whatever state you are called. He's trying to guard them from discontentment, and which is obviously a sin that all are, are temptable uh, with. Because if you're discontent, you're focused on circumstances and what you don't have, and you're going to lose focus on Christ and what you do have and the realities of eternity that should be shaping your here and now. And what he does is he uses two illustrations here to help them understand. The first is uh, circumcision, and the second is that of, of slavery or, or bondservant. So cir- circumcision, he said, is no, it, it was the symbol uh, of, of the old covenant. He says, it's no longer, we're under a new covenant now, so yeah, you don't need to go get plastic surgery, and you don't need to go out and get circumcised. This is not, circumcision is no longer some kind of important thing that marks the people of God, so that's, you don't, he says, remain as you are. And then he moves on to the idea of bondservant or slavery. Now, when you hear this, don't think of the American race-based evil slavery um, that, that most of us are, are, are aware of here in, in our own country. But also don't, do not be, yeah, do not hear this as, oh, I'm sure this was just easy like going to work. Um, it's, it's, it's different. Some, depending on your master, this was either really a really wonderful deal in the sense that you were provided for and cared for and loved for and able to have all kinds of amenities you never would have been able to have in any other kind of situation or circumstance. Or it was, it was really, really difficult because you had a harsh master. About a third of the people in Corinth were slaves. Another third were emancipated slaves. So two-thirds of the population of somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people were either slaves or had been in that, that situation and, and scenario. Okay? Now, we, we should think of it... Um, yeah, this is, this is obvious. There's lots here. But what, what he's telling them is this. To not fret or worry about the social situation that you're in. This is, this is more what he's talking about. He's not talking about whether slavery is good or evil. What he's doing is saying, this is the situation you're in. I want to help you live in it. Let me, let, me, let me help you understand how to honor the Lord in the situation you're called. So there's other places in the scripture, like the book of Philemon, that might give some really good instruction to think about how, okay, we as Christians, uh, how we might work against these sorts of evil systems. I don't think that's what Paul is doing right here. Though he does say really clearly, listen, if you can get out, take it. And if you're, if you're not a slave, don't become one. So, so he, there's that, okay? But what he's trying to tell them to, the, is this, that your social, social status is, is not... Im- it's not preeminent. It's not the most important thing. Because if you're in Christ, you're free. And he wants them to understand that. To know that in Christ, they are, they've been liberated from the greatest slavery that there is. 
He's not belittling any harsh treatment that they would have had or faced under this at all. That's not what he's, he's doing here, right? What he's saying is the social status, whether you're married or unmarried, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, is not important if you are in Christ. Because your identity is in Him. So find value in that and operate from that. Okay? That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's going after there. I'm actually going to pause there and take a couple questions so that what he's going to do in verses 25 through 40 is, is now move to singleness and talk about that. Um, but this seems like a, a fine place to pause. I'm sh- we covered some, yeah, some tricky ground. I'll do my best to answer a couple questions um, if you have them. Yes. I don't think that's true. Huh? I don't think that's true. What's hot? There are, there are divorces among Christians, yes, but some of those statistics are not as certainly... Go ahead, ask your question. I just, I just want to be clear. So sometimes there's, there's, there's statistics that have been used I think are not. I don't think they're super-duper accurate. But, but yes, there are way too many divorces among, among professing Christians, yes. Great. Yeah, great question. How should the church think about um, yeah, the negligence of, of the culture in which divorce has been yeah, per- permitted? Yeah, I think we should weep and mourn and repent over it. Yeah, I think we should weep and mourn and repent over it. So I think first thing is to ensure that in your congregation that we are doing our best to uphold marriage and, and help pray for marriages and serve them. And that we are very clear that there's not biblical grounds for divorces where there's not. So if it's just not working out or I'm not happy anymore, like that's not a ground for divorce. This is just not. And I, yeah, I think any pastoral leadership who allows that to be a, a reason for divorce, and, the, and, and especially when you twist scripture to be like, well, they're, they're abandoning them. I just say, that's a misuse of scripture and is dangerous. And... Yeah, don't twist Scripture to, to permit things that God would forbid. So I think the short answer of it is that somebody who has divorced and remarried and then understands that what they did was not right is that they should repent of that, which does not mean they get another divorce. It means that they acknowledge what I did was wrong. And they're maybe reaching out to people and confessing that and asking for forgiveness and everything that goes with that. Um, but then you remain as you are, as Paul would instruct here, and you're faithful in that marriage, and that's, that's what you can do. So, um, yeah. Good question. Yes? What about um, abuse? Yeah. What about cases of abuse? So this is it's a very important thing. So I think first and foremost, if there is any abuse going on, um, I want to I encourage you to let, to let the elders of your church know. So we, we want to immediately... Intervene, And what that means is we want to make sure that, that somebody's not in danger, which very often it means removing someone from, from the home and providing another place for them to be, right? So just want to, I want to say that. So if any of you are in a situation where you're, you're facing abuse right now, I want you to know we want to help in whatever ways we are able, but please let us know. I know it can be, I can, I can only imagine how scary it is 
and how misunderstood you may feel or lots of fears, I just want to say we want to, we want to help if we're, as much as we're able. Um, I, I just want to say I think it's a case-by-case basis and that, so I'm going to say the uncomfortable thing first. Abuse has become a buzzword in our culture that is, as soon as you say it, everybody freaks out. And this is, not, this is not minimizing abuse. Please hear this. I'm not minimizing it. But I think we need to be careful with how we use that word and what we mean by it. We are, you're all, we're all going to sin against one another all the time. And there are degrees in which that sinning happens. And there are certainly, I think, I think there are lines that are crossed that are, any sin is, is forbidden. But I think there's some that, that truly are hurting people physically, emotionally, sexually, in ways that when, when this is happening, there has to be intervention and there needs to be pr- protection, right? What that looks like in regards to, to divorce, I, I just want to say I, it has to be a case-by-case basis because there's so many factors. Does the person repent? How do you know it's real repentance? How do you know that they're not just acting because they like controlling somebody and they want to get back in? So I, I'm hesitant to say, well, this is, this is how you handle abuse cases because I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. I've never seen one that's the same. Every situation is different, and I think it has to be a case-by-case basis. I think it has to be. It's, it, so I'm not trying to dodge your question. I think this is why you have living elders in churches to help pastor these. So, yeah. How, does the church, how would the church handle a situation where, let's say, um, you have a member who has come from a, um, a country where polygamy is accepted? I don't know. Yeah, so the question is, what do you do with pol- polygamy? Um, yeah, there's, there's, so, so your options are, so if you have somebody who comes from a, a polygamous background, they have five wives, um, and he becomes a Christian, and he wants to honor the Lord, what do, you, what do you do? Well, I think a case can be made for, well, the first wife is actually his only wife, and all the other ones are not, not actually his wife, so he should, yeah, divorce them and whatever that looks like. I think a case can be made for that. And again, I'm going through this quickly, and it sounds heartless, this would all be done with prayer and compassion and tenderness and crying and all of that, okay? So please hear that. Um, the second option is that we read Paul and says, you remain as you are, and you've got to take into, you take into consideration, well, what, what happens to these wives? Because some cultures, if you divorce a wife, you are now viewed as, I mean, the scum of the earth, and you're going to, be, you're going to have no options. You're going to, have to be, you're going to be basically a beggar or a prostitute. And that's not loving. And that's, not, that's not wise either. So again, I think it's situation by situation, circumstance by circumstances. I don't think there's a clear-cut answer on it. So now some may disagree with that, and we'll find out in heaven. You know, so I mean, like I, I don't, I don't know. So God help us and give us wisdom. Okay, last question, Butch. How would this fall under church discipline? Pardon? How would it fall under church discipline? Yeah. So how would this fall under church discipline? Yeah. If if someone pursues a divorce for a non-biblical reason, we would we would discipline them publicly. We would say that this is sin, unrepentant sin. You must not do this. And we would certainly, because we, we, we think you, if you persist in unrepentant sin, we're going to have a hard time saying you're a believer. You're going to walk away from your husband? You're going to walk away from your wife? Yeah, I think it's a heinous sin. Yeah. Wisely, you know, prayerfully. But. Call to singleness now. Or a case for singleness. Verse 25 through 31. Now concerning the betrothed, I have uh, no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. When you hear betrothed, think engagement except legally binding as marriage. So in this culture, a betrothal is, it's engagement, but it's beyond our engagement. So it's like a legal thing where you're actually married, but you're not allowed to, to move in together and have sexual intimacy until um, the marriage ceremony actually happens. So it's, it's kind of like think, think engagement on steroids is what it is. Okay, so it's, um, it's a very serious commitment. Um, and, and the question that's coming up is, what should betrothed people do? What should engaged people do? Should they break off their engagement or should they go ahead and get married? And what Paul's going to do is he's going to make his case for singleness right here. And what his driving thinking is, is that Jesus is coming back soon. Right? So Romans 13, 11 would say it this way. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. What he's saying is that that reality, that Jesus' return is ever approaching should affect the way that we do everything. It should make you weigh seriously whether or not you get married. And he says, because you will have worldly troubles if you get married. What he means by that is sharing schedules. You've got to, you know, you've got to go sh- shopping for those. I have no idea why you need 50 pillows on a bed. Like, I've never... Never understood. Throw pillow. Throw it away. I don't understand what they're for. Okay? So like, but that's stuff I never, ever, ever would have thought about. Okay? I just never would have thought about. You got soccer soccer practices. You got to clean the garage that you just cleaned because a whole locust plague of kids went in and defiled the whole thing again. You got to change diapers. You got, there is stuff that happens when you get married. And it's glorious stuff. It really is. So just, just a word to make sure you know I'm not grumbling. Well, I am grumbling, but I'm repenting of it. Is, is this. John Henderson and I were, a couple of years ago, we were at the zoo at night. Um, was, um, and we were, there were the kids, and they were, they were running around. And our kids were just acting a fool, you know. And they were just doing all this kind of stuff. I looked at John and said, this is the life. And, of, of course, in a John Henderson way, he said, you know, it is the life. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so... But it was really convicting, okay? So, <laughs> so I, John would be fine. The other day, he was grumbling a little bit, and I said, you remember this time we were at the zoo? And uh, so I got him back. But, um, <laughs> so, so I want to encourage those of you who, who do have these sorts of things to remember that it is indeed the good life. If this is your gift, this is your gift. So enjoy it and all the things that come with it because God will use that to make you more like Jesus. And he will, he will give you opportunity through it to show Jesus, okay? For those of you who aren't married, you need to take this into serious consideration when you're thinking about getting married, okay? So for instance, I got married later than I thought I would in life. And both Carrie and I loved our singleness. We loved being single. Loved it. It was awesome. It was hard. It was really difficult. It was lonely. There was things I missed out. It was hard going home at night and, you know, everybody else is, is going home with their spouse. I'm going to go home and my dog, I'm like, hey, you know. You know, I mean, it's just like there were, there were times that's tough to do, okay? Um, but I loved the freedom that I had. 
for, to, to be able to just serve the Lord without any kind of restraint, right? Um, and I just want to encourage you who are single to consider this. Like, it's a legit thing that Jesus is coming back soon. And if you're single, you have real opportunity as a single person to be able to be used by the Lord in a way that's not restricted by worldly opportunities. It might be another nicer translation, but it's true, right? Verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Hold on. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as those who had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is not a call to be reckless and act like there's no pains or no joys. It's, it's a call to not lose perspective. To not let marriage or money or mourning or meetings to hinder you from a heavenly mindset. This is what he's saying. He's saying keep it in perspective. Don't cling to what you do have and don't be controlled by what you don't have. This is a call for contentment. He calls our hearts to have a holy indifference toward the pleasures of this life. Which does not mean you should enjoy good things. Okay? So get you some extra cheese on your burger. It's fine, okay? Or whatever your, your thing is. Right? That's, that's okay. Enjoy it. But don't try and find life in those things. We are so tempted to hold on to stuff or relationships as this is life for me, and they're never designed to be life. Christ is our life. So there's a contentment in the heart He's calling here uh, us, us to have that sets our eyes upon Jesus as being supreme and making sure that whatever state we're in, that we're living for Him in that state in a way that is, is, is liberated. Okay? Verse 32, particularly to the singles, the opportunity for undivided devotion. 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but in those, those couple of verses there, the word anxious, anxious shows up five times. Did you see that? The word means to be concerned, to be entangled. Now, it's, it's good if you're entangled with the Lord. <laughs> but marriage often offers unique bundles of anxieties, right? A few more we didn't list earlier. Paint colors. Did you know there's something called seafoam? I didn't know that. Did you know it matters if something's seafoam light or seafoam mild? I didn't know that either. Do you know you're supposed to vacuum? I didn't know that. Like, this is something that, there's this thing that, I'm just kidding about that, but there's, did you know that some men, maybe some in this room, have to decide? whether they're going to watch a Hallmark movie with their wife or Monday Night Football. Like, that's a real thing that has to happen in some homes. Pray for those brothers, right? Um, there's, there's braces and there's all kinds of stuff, okay? And he's saying, hey, it's a thing. 
Married couples must be in, intentional to cultivate devotion to the Lord. Okay? And it's very possible, but there are 10,000 things that are going to pull you away from devotion to Him. Unmarried folk, he's saying here, have an advantage. It's not discounting the fact that you don't have someone there to help you with stuff. That's a legit reality. Okay? But singleness is exceptional. It's exceptional. It's a privileged gift because you have an opportunity to, as he says here, have undivided devotion to the Lord. So the call here for you single brothers and sisters is to consider seriously if singleness is something the Lord might have given you so that you can serve Him. He's not being cruel. He actually loves you a lot. Now there's a real temptation to use your singleness in order to just serve yourself. Be like, well, I'm just going to travel then. I'm just going to buy whatever I want then. I'm going to have nine cats. Fine. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, whatever your thing is, right? Just be careful. Nobody should have nine cats. I just want to say, I think, I'm sure it's somewhere in here, but like, you know, like but, but, um, I have no idea where I am, but the, 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 what he's saying here is there is real, there's real opportunity as a single person to serve the Lord. And you should, you should weigh that. And don't just use it to spend it on yourself, but use this for undivided devotion to Him. Verse 36, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it, uh, and, and, uh, and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his a desire under control, and is determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he would, he would do well. Stop calling for perpetual engagement there. He's just saying that you won't marry her. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So this, by the way, is... Uh, is, is, is a place that some would point to and say, see, this is the only reason for remarriage ever is if this, the former spouse dies. And I think it's a, legitimate, it's a legitimate view. Yet my judgment, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God, which is a little tongue-in-cheek because the, the Corinthians were all filled with the Spirit and wisdom. He's like, I think I have the Spirit too. Apostle. Right? So that's, that's kind of what he's doing. So what he does here is he's concluding with a word of, of to, to the engaged. If you can remain single, you're free to do that. Maybe it's best. But it's not sin if you go ahead and get married. Two other just notes before we move on. The first is to notice that marriage lasts, chapter 7, verse 39, until death, as long as it lives. Which is both an encouragement to those who are married to remain married. But it's also an understanding of, of the, that, that death breaks the marriage covenant. This is also found in Romans. The second thing to notice here is that marriage is, for a believer, is chapter 7, verse 39, only in the Lord. Once again, here's the command to not marry an unbeliever. It's very, very clear. God loves you enough to tell you this, okay? So that's his word to, to the to singles, okay? Let's pause. I'm happy to take a, a couple questions um, about, about this section. Mark. Statement is addressing only the betrothed who he who he like 
actually annotates the section by, by speaking to directly, or if it's speaking to everyone, in a sense that even married people, there's a sense where they're undividedly devoted to Christ, because in that same section he's saying, if you're married, live as though you, you aren't. So is it addressing only single people in terms of uh, securing their undivided devotion, yeah. or is it speaking to everyone? Sure. So I, I think um, the question is, who, who's he addressing? Um, as in right now, I'm teaching this to all of us. So it's going to land on different people in different ways. So I think married people should hear this and say, they should huddle up later on and be like, what's distracting us that could be removed so that we can have better devotion to the Lord? That sounds like we, we should really be careful. People who aren't engaged should think, you know what? I need to have a retreat with Jesus and really just see, Lord, are you calling me to singleness forever? And be willing to do that and surrender. People who are engaged should probably talk. Let's, let's be honest. Like, I love you. I think you're awesome. I think marriage with you would be wonderful. But I think what God says there is something we need to consider. What, what do you think? Right? And I think that's what it, it's, it's intended to, to affect everybody who's listening. Um, so he's just he's trying to hit everybody in the room. A good question. How, how should we understand what he's talking about there with the children being made holy? If, if you have a, a divorce and you have a, a believing and unbelieving um, a, a parent, I think what he's, he's saying is not that they are grafted in to the people of God because their, their believing parent is, is a believer. What he's saying is, so let's say mom's a believer and dad's not a believer, and the children go to dad's house, and it's, it's very different than when they go to mom's house. And there's something the Lord will use about when you're at mom's house, or if dad's a believer, vice versa. When you're there, that God will use to inform your conscience. And to, 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 in such a way that you know it's always going to be there. That Mama always talked about the Lord, always prayed for us. We prayed over meals in a way that God will use that in a way that if it would be very different if they just grew up in a non-Christian house. Not that God can't rescue them. He certainly does that for a lot of people. But there's some kind of unique blessing about being raised with a Christian parent. I think that's what he's saying there. And again, I, th- I think what he's saying there in verse 25 is, is not, he's not pulling that this is, okay, this part's not scripture. I think what he's just saying is I don't have, Jesus has not spoken directly about this that I'm quoting. So he's not able to footnote Jesus. And again, it might be a little bit of tongue-in-cheek with I think I know what, I think I know what I'm talking about kind of thing. Um, in the same way that he ended the chapter. Because he uses a little bit of that sarcasm with the Corinthians. So, um, yeah, I think he's, he's helping him to see this, this present distress of the, the, the persecution and everything that's coming and then Christ's return. Yeah, sounds good. Yep. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think Paul, view, how, how should we think about that doing better? And, and I, I think Paul 
You got to understand, inspiration of the of, of the scripture is is not just dic- dictation to where it's just like a robot. It is is through his his he's, he's really writing it, and his real personality and experiences are are being used and harnessed by by the Holy Spirit. Um, and and I think there. I think we just all have to admit, marriage is amazing, it has its place, but singleness is amazing, it has its place. And in the same way that later on you're going to see that prophecy is, is a certain kind of edifying, where an interpreted tongue is, but it's just different. I think in the same way, singleness and marriage, I, I think it's, it's, it's just a different thing. And in one sense, there is, there is a freedom that single people have that's better, in, in a sense. Uh, not in every sense, but in a sense, and I think that's what he's going after there, so... It's a good, good question. Last question. When he talks about, uh, he says, are you free from a wife? Is he talking about somebody who's never been married or somebody who has already been married? Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Yeah, I think he means somebody who's single. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good. Great section. Great questions. We're going to pause uh, and take a, take a brief break. And we're going to come back and do chapters uh, 8 through 10 with food sacrificed to idols. It's a little bit more quicker moving section, um, but let's pray. Father, we thank you and we pray that you would help us to have devoted hearts that are aware of the return of your Son. And that as that day is ever approaching, that you would help us to live in light of that. In whatever state we're in, that you would give us contentment and joy, trusting you with what you've given to us. And God, might we respond in faith. Use your word to transform us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.